0: Hour the enemy pushes closer. to evacuate. It's no. impossible. Dunkirk. Ready PG-13. Experience it on IMAX July 21st.
1: everyone, and welcome back to this final Christopher Nolan, well, last movie in his repertoire as of this moment, episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? With me, as always, is my co-host and friend, Josh Page.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction.
1: It was um, a little, uh, little fumbling, a little but it's okay.
2: Botched, you botched whatever it is you're saying about the final episode but it's not it's not
1: the final episode but it is the last movie that we have seen of his thus far because to date we have not watched Tenet, and we have not watched whatever other movies he has made in the future if you're listening i don't know 20 years from now this is all we got right now
2: jesus that's a far way out but hey if we've learned anything from this man that time is relevant and irrelevant at the same time so
1: Well, if we learned anything from interstellar, time is always linear for us humans. But
2: maybe one of us will be older and the other one will be just the same age. And maybe, you know, I don't know. It could be a strange, strange thing.
1: Yeah, well, we just need to get that unicorn blood like Keanu Reeves.
2: I'm all about it. I don't know how he does it.
1: I don't know. I saw a meme the other day where it was literally a portrait of like someone from like fifteen thirty four and it looks exactly, exactly like about.
2: Keanu Reeves.
1: And I'm like, Ke- like <laughs> this man is a fucking wizard. I saw I something like that with a uh, Nick Cage too. It was like a eighteen sixties like, like oil picture. painting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I know the one you're talking about. That's so weird.
1: I don't know how they do it.
2: We'll 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 have to crack that case one day. Um uh, for now we're just I think we're trying to correct the case of time. And I think
1: we're just in the matrix. I completely agree. That's kind of what uh, version of the
2: matrix kind of sucks.
1: What are you talking about? Aren't you having I'm fun? I'm
2: kind of with Cypher on this one. I mean, I'm just going to take a hard left turn in this conversation. I think it's, that when he's eating that steak and he's like, I know that this steak tastes good because I know it tastes good. I'm like, yo, I, I feel that, man. Like the steak may not be real, but like it's real to him. And like, I don't know, man, like, that speaks volumes to me. I, I don't
1: know. My mind about this year goes to community. I just think we're in the darkest timeline.
2: Oh, that's no doubt. I mean, that's why we have beards. We're trying to work on our evil goatees.
1: Um, and speaking of
2: the darkest timeline, this was a darkest. Uh, this was a. Oh, this was the darkest hour of the darkest timeline. I should say, this film that we're covering tonight.
1: Yes, this movie, if I had not mentioned it before, is Christopher Nolan's 2017 film, Dunkirk. It is Dunkirk, all right. Not The Darkest Hour, which also came out the same year and is literally almost happening the exact at, same. It's happening almost at the exact I, same time.
2: I don't know if you ever saw, but it's they—they they, someone mashed up both movies into like a super trailer.
1: She's just mashing sh- it.
2: To show just... It's always sending reference number one. Just mention it. Uh, and it was pretty interesting to see, even though the two movies cannot be more different in style and tone. But
1: yeah. We will definitely talk about Darkest Hour again at some point during this podcast. I know. I it,
2: think it's inevitable. It, again. Inevitable. With,
1: within the next, I would argue, 10 minutes, it will come up in
2: conversation. <laughs> I'm all about it. Hit me with it.
1: Well, first, uh, let's talk about our first times watching this. Uh, what was uh, your first experience with the film?
2: I had a friend who texted me. And he's one of my uh, movie, fellow movie, uh, another one of my fellow movie friends. And um, we, uh, it's actually uh, one of uh, Anthony LaGrega's friends. It's uh, my friend from Best Buy. And uh, we have a very low maintenance relationship. We text a couple times a year Well, a few times a year, I'd say. And then we'll try and meet up a few times, a couple times a year. And it's almost always going to the movies. I saw once a time in Hollywood with him. Um, but he was like, he texted me and he was like, Hey, Dunkirk's coming out. We're going. And I was like, all right, count me in. And we went and, uh, I sat there. Um, I was in awe, of course, as I often am. And I don't even think we really spoke about the movie. I think we kind of just parted ways never to see each other again until the next one, you know, so until,
1: uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, uh,
2: yeah, that might've, I saw blade runner 2049 with him. I think it was okay. later that year in October. And yep. then I didn't see him again until once upon a time in Hollywood.
1: <laughs> wow. You guys have uh good movie choices here. Uh, we try. Uh, my first time watching the movie, uh, I actually went to the AMC in Lincoln Center. So I saw it on the huge IMAX screen, just as uh, prescribed by Nolan. And I think I saw it, if I remember correctly, this was the same time we were working together. And Josh worked the morning shift. I worked the night shift. And I saw it in the morning before I came to work. And I literally came in to the office and looked at Josh. I was like, dude, this fucking
2: <laughs> that was always a good conversation
1: it was you
2: would see a movie before i would because you worked the night shifts and you would go during the day and you would come in and there was that look i knew not know was there a good or bad and there was always dude this fucking movie that was always a good sign
1: i miss <laughs> uh i miss those days it was life was a little simpler back then I, I just love going to the movies again and not have to worry about uh getting sick that would be nice um I think
2: you saw Last Jedi before I did cuz we had a Christmas party that night.
1: Yes, I left the Christmas party early to go see Last Jedi and then and you saw it again the next day. I saw it again the next morning oh, before man. work. Oh. So literally within a 12 hour period I had seen it twice which I do with all of the Star Wars movies for better or for Not
2: this, years. not this last one though.
1: I did. I did. I had oh. to keep up with tradition. Oh, so I,
2: you you did it for yourself. Yeah, I did it so for you're myself. A, so you're a, for the record, you're a masochist.
1: Yes, I, we don't have to go into it too deep, but <laughs> after I left The Rise of Skywalker the first time, I literally slammed the door open from the theater and was like, and I screamed out, this is dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> and on the subway ride back to my apartment, I was contemplating, should I wake up early and see the movie again? And I came to the conclusion, yes, because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just. I always say, like, judge a movie not on what you uh, judge a movie on what you get, not what you expect it to be. So, I thought the one leaving the theater, okay, maybe it just didn't reach what I thought it was going to do. Maybe it was better, and then I left the second time, and it was worse. It was worse. But
2: I will say, I've had that exact experience where, and I think that most people have, where it's like. You watch a movie and for, like you said, perfectly said, for better or worse, it's like you don't really know what you just watched. You almost like you're you're still digesting it. You're still processing it. So you almost, because you're still like high off of it, again, for better or worse, it's like, was this as good or bad as I thought? Let me watch it again. People like us, like we love going back to the movies. So it's like to really register what it is you're feeling will come into focus that second or third time depending on how the movie you know what kind of movie it is um and i've definitely had those experiences
1: you're ready for pre-production yes
2: so we're gonna jump into the pre-production here
1: let's do it to it so they actually filmed in dunkirk like where the battle took place which is I saw that pretty crazy
2: that's pretty cool
1: and because again nolan likes uh to try and make things as real as possible. And to that end, he also wanted actors that were like age appropriate. He wanted like young kids, 17, eight year olds uh, to come in and p- portray the soldiers. Yeah, And he said, part of the reason for that too, was if you have an explosion next to a 17 or 18 year olds head, they're going to react like a soldier really would. Cause they're not, used to it at that point you know yeah
2: but speaking of explosion well not really explosion but just the, even the sounds and the way people react the top trivia on imdb is that um uh, apparently roughly 30 dunkirk survivors who were in their mid-90s attended the premiere in london and when asked about the movie they felt that it accurately captured the event but that the soundtrack was louder than the actual bombardment This huh. is uh comment greatly amused uh christopher nolan so
1: Interesting, you know. Yeah. Whenever you hear about those like war veterans seeing uh, war movies, you know, like yeah. I know Saving Private Ryan. Oh yeah. The soldiers saw it; they were like it horrified because of how like <laughs> accurate it was. You know how accurate the beach sequence was. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that. It's wild. But like I said, they uh, actually filmed in Dunkirk, so they they had to remake the mole, which is the dock. That's wild. Yeah, they had to make it look like it would in the nineteen forty. But the craziest part is that, you know, for most sets, it's like just cardboard, essentially. Like it's not, not necessarily cardboard. I'm just using that as an example, but it's like a cheap imitation of what would really be standing there. But well, when they, they
2: use b- real cardboard stand-ins for the background characters. Yes. Because they did not, he wanted to avoid CGI.
1: Yeah. But for the mole, he couldn't use cheap stuff. They actually had to make like a real mole because it went into the channel and it was rough seas. So every day they would come to the mole and part of it would be like washed away because of how strong the tide was. Oh my God. Uh, Apparently the first two weeks of filming were like, they got hit with a huge storm so they were like filming in these terrible weather conditions the whole time that
2: sounds terrible
1: yeah because usually on a film they do it like they build a tank. you know they did this on titanic they build a huge tank fill it with water and you can kind of control the environment but here again nolan wanted reality so they're actually filming in dunkirk and on the channel like er- all of the boat sequences are done on boats yeah in the channel which is nuts
2: i mean as far as genuine production goes this is probably one of the most ambitious films he's ever done because oh, absolutely. of because of how much he wanted to because we've always said that he wants to go for the realism look but like He really goes the extra mile and is like, oh, we want to film it at Dunkirk? Film it at Dunkirk. You want it on boats? Film it on boats. Like he wanted it as literally aesthetic as possible.
1: But to make things harder for himself, it's not like they're filming on digital cameras either. They're filming on IMAX cameras or 65 millimeter cameras. Yeah, You know, large format cameras. An IMAX camera is 70 pounds. So the cinematographer is literally on, what's his face? Mark Rylance's boat hitting these heavy waves. And the cinematographer has to like lean into the waves to avoid the current. And he's holding a 70 pound camera. You fall into the channel, you're going to fall in, like the camera's going to fall in with you.
2: So funny you say that. Actually,
1: yeah, go on.
2: The trivia, bit it says the sequence where the Spitfire ditches into the English channel an IMAX camera was strapped into the cockpit to film Collins, uh, Jack Loudon, trying to get out. However, during filming the plane with the camera still inside sank quicker than predicted. <laughs> it took so long to retrieve the plane that the IMAX camera housing filled with water, potentially ruining the expensive camera and the film inside. But Nolan using an old movie technique, kept the film, uh, keeping the film wet, shipped it back to LA, getting it processed before it dried out, and the take from that scene is apparently in the movie, which is bananas.
1: It is bananas. <laughs> I
2: just had it up here. I could I couldn't believe that, but
1: classic Nolan.
2: Oh my god.
1: Yeah, they used uh, real Spitfires. Uh, <sighs> they had to find a way to mount the IMAX cameras onto them, <laughs> and these planes are literally going two hundred miles an hour. The actors were literally in them. Uh, the cinematographer and Christopher Nolan went up in the air with the Spitfires. Like, they were outside on helicopters following them. They put, like, an IMAX camera on the front and back of several other planes to follow the Spitfires. It's it's nuts, the lengths that they went to to get these shots.
2: It's really, I mean, it's probably one of the most in-depth filmed war movies ever made i mean in terms of like the 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 lengths it took to try and get the shot that they did
1: yeah I it's saw, unbelievable
2: the more stories i read
1: not just the planes but i saw a lot of behind the scenes footage of what they filmed on the water and it's just crazy you know like oh my god spielberg had difficulty with just the orca and the boat uh, and the shark in jaws now, amplify that by, like, 20 to 30 times because Nolan is using a real destroyer. He's using, like, 30 other boats on top of it. Yeah, it's just nuts. It's insane. Oh, man. I can't, uh, I can't even really imagine. really lot.
2: I mean, honestly, like, and, and we can talk all about this when we wrap talking about Nolan, but, I mean, the final product really shows. I mean, in terms of, like, going the extra mile, like, does someone need to go to these kind of lengths to get the shots that they need to please an audience? Like maybe, that's debatable. I mean, I think that most audiences would have eaten this up if it was all CGI or all the background stuff with CGI, but the fact that it's not makes it that much more admirable when you actually realize, oh, this was like incredibly overwhelming and incredibly like impressive, but because it feels that way, it actually looks that way. You're not suspending your disbelief. You're actually watching what's happening almost literally when these things are the acting yeah. is taking place.
1: There's something about the reality of this time around that really hits home. Yeah. Let's shift. Sure. Let's shift to the music. I've, this has become a very common trope throughout yep. the Nolan podcast. But Zimmer once again outdoes himself. Yep. Zimmer said that this is probably the hardest film that he's ever worked on with Christopher Nolan because throughout the whole movie you have to have a tone that is constantly ascending and there's no way to like technically do that it was through trickery that the clocks and the beats and everything just had to feel like it was constantly upping because the tension had to keep rising Um... It it had to put you in a heightened state
2: Which is funny you say that because apparently another trivia bit here is that apparently the ticking sounds that serve as a crucial theme in the score were recorded uh from one of Hans Zimmer's pocket watches uh he then put the sounds into synthesizers and altered them in different ways for the soundtrack um so it's like it's incredibly articulate down to the idea of it wanting to capture the sound of a pocket watch and then like completely um expanding that. You know if, what I
1: mean? If anyone would have a pocket watch, it would be Hans Zimmer.
2: <laughs> I was thinking that when I read that trivia, but I'm like, who would have a pocket watch? I mean, I know that like they're cool and vintage, but like I uh, it would just make sense. Like you look at Hans Zimmer in an interview and you're like, oh, it would make sense that this man would actually have a pocket watch. <laughs> but That's- yeah, the score is absolutely incredible. The ticking clock throughout the tension is it's like that water scene in uh interstellar when they're on the the water planet uh time but but throughout the whole movie,
1: the score in general just helps keep the tone of the movie throughout because you know there are moments you could fade in and out in but the watch ticking constantly just keeps you on edge the entire time you're like it's,
2: yeah it's endless tension they make you feel like The time is really at stake here. Everything that's happening, every second counts or every hour or week or day.
1: Let's talk about the Oscars. It got nominated for eight awards and it won three. It won Best Editing, not a surprise given what we were just talking about. It won Best Sound Mixing and Best Sound Editing. It uh, was nominated for Best Picture, nominated for Best Director, nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Original Score and Best Production Design. Wow! Yeah, the Best Picture lineup this year, pretty good.
2: This lost to Shape of Water.
1: Lost to Shape of Water. Other nominees were Call Me by Your Name, The Darkest Hour. I told you it would come back up again. <laughs> Get Out, Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, The Post, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. That's a great year. It's a. Uh, Pretty good year. I've
2: got my opinions about all those movies, but that's overall a great year for movies. It was
1: Nolan's first time being uh, being nominated for Best Director.
2: That's cool. He lost to
1: Guillermo del Toro. Okay. Other nominees were PTA, Greta Gerwig, and Jordan Peele. So, again, top-tier directors here. Best Cinematography. I'm sorry, Nolan, but it went to the right person.
2: What was it, Wally? Wally Pfister? We want right. to, no, no, I know Wally Fister didn't win, but he, Wally Pfister shot Dunkirk, right? No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't?
1: No, it was Hoyta, his, uh, oh, Nolan's new boy. Right. But Best Cinematography went to the right guy. It went to Roger Deakins <laughs> for Blade Runner 2049. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I mean... Uh, but that's as beautiful of a movie as it gets. That movie is... Blade Runner for 2049 is like one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen.
2: We can, uh, yeah, we're gonna have to save that whole talk for another episode.
1: Yeah, I know. But we I were, agree. I know we were just praising the score, so I just want to mention that it lost to The Shape of Water for Alexander Desplat. Uh, one. Okay, that's fine. Other nominees were Phantom Thread, Last Jedi, and Three Billboards.
2: Okay. I mean, I think it really came down to the two. Best
1: Production Design, Shape of Water won. Uh, Other nominees were uh, Beauty and the Beast, Blade Runner, and Darkest Hour. That's wonderful. Again, we can all have our opinions. Yeah, of course. And more important than the Oscars, this is Quentin Tarantino's third favorite film of the decade.
2: (laughs) That's pretty bold.
1: It is. And that's really all the pre-production I have. Good. I don't know if we want to touch on this, but we could talk about the actual Battle of Dunkirk real quick. It took place from uh, May 26th to June 4th, 1940. Uh, The British had approximately 400,000 men on the beach. They got about three hundred and thirty-eight thousand two hundred and twenty-six men evacuated, which means that sixty-one thousand seven hundred and seventy-four men were wounded or killed. So, uh, less people than died during COVID. Oh, oh, oh.
2: That is true. <laughs> which, wow, uh, that really says something. It does. Um about
1: eight hundred boats from South England came in real life to save the men from Dunkirk.
2: That's amazing. Yeah, I have a quote from Nolan here who talks about it. Um, stating the importance of the war. He says this this isn't a uh the Battle of Dunkirk is an essential moment in the history of World War Two. This evacuation had not been a success, Great Britain would have been obligated to capit um capitulate. Yep. Well, that's uh, what uh, uh,
1: The Darkest Hour is about, more or less. It's about Churchill deciding whether or not he wanted to capitulate or not. Yeah. Because everything looked lost. Yeah. When you have most of your army stranded on a beach in France, and, you know, the French on the 25th of June, 1940, surrendered to Germany, it's like... You know it's hard to hold out but luckily they were able to hold out because of the amount of men they saved from the beach
2: that's what i love about this that separates it and we can say this for final Boss, but that's what i love that it separates it from other war movies is this whole feeling of loss in terms of like there's this hope that they're going to succeed and then planes fly over and uh, you know boats keep sinking and terrible things keep happening and in the end they're like you get this feeling that they lost the characters are surrendering and then all of a sudden it's like they read the newspapers and people are congratulating them and all of a sudden well, you realize the we'll perspective.
1: get to it when we talk about the plot but there's the moment at the end when harry styles character is literally like embarrassed to get back to england because he's like everyone is going to be so ashamed what are people yeah. going to think yeah and that's what made the ending of this movie so beautiful. We know it's a loss battlefield wise, but the fact that these men made it home was, it's a miracle. But um, again, we'll get to that at the end, but that's all I really got for a conversation, you know, pre-production production and the war itself. No, and it's, yeah, it's We don't good. need to it's... go too deep into the war,
2: but. No, no, absolutely not. Good. We're good.
1: Uh... But we don't have time for a whole war conversation world no, war ii conversation
2: we can save that for another time. you ready to get in the plot i am beyond ready the film opens on several british soldiers wandering amid silence in a completely abandoned town the silence is broken with the fluttering of propaganda pamphlets cascading from the sky they simply read we surround you a title card cuts in the enemy have driven the British and French armies to the sea. Trapped at Dunkirk, they await their fate, hoping for deliverance. Miracle. The soldiers begin to look around the town. One of them tries to drink from a hose. Another grabs a cigarette butt through a window. And Tommy, Fionne Whitehead, unbuckles his pants and squats down side of a the house. Their moment of peace breaks as gunshots come towards them. The soldiers flee but one by one they are taken out. All that survives is Tommy, who hops the fence. He then is almost shot down by the French army, who have a tenuous hold on the situation. The French throw him out of their quarters. In a short walk, which one again reinforces how close the German army is, Tommy makes it to the beach. On the beach are hundreds of British soldiers, all in lines that lead directly into the channel.
1: Yeah, that was kind of weird. Those lines were literally going into the water i was like where are you aiming right now like i get you have to be in line but do you have to be online into the water right (laughs) tommy goes off to the side
2: all this poor man wants to do is take a shit as he squats tommy makes eye contact with another soldier gibson and you're in bernard i'm sorry i'm just imagining the alternate version of this movie where it's a soldier having to desperately drop a noose and as he's unbuckling his pants he's spotted and he locks eyes with another soldier at gunpoint and he has to keep escaping gunfire and that's just the plot of the film. <laughs>
1: different Maybe if it was a different director. Gibson is either burying
2: or digging up a fallen soldier buried in the sand. After sharing a cantina, Tommy tries to get onto a line of soldiers. Presumably this is the line of soldiers that will leave next. But Tommy is quickly dismissed. A top comes onto the screen. One, the mole, one week. As Tommy wanders, a plane is heard overhead. The British soldiers on the ground begin to scatter and fall to the floor. Tommy was one bomb away from being hit. The plane vanishes into the clouds. A British soldier shouts in desperation, Where's the bloody Air Force? <laughs> a riveting moment,
1: no doubt. Yeah, but he's literally like almost bombed in that moment. I love it. A title card comes up to the sea. Day one, George. Barry Kyogen. I've never known how to pronounce his name. I don't know. The guy from Killing of a Sacred Deer. <laughs> this time, he's not a creep. Good job. Usually, he's playing like a weird creeper. Great job, Barry. Yeah. George is running down the docks in England. He stops in front of the ship Revlis. Silver spelled backwards. Aboard are Mr. Dawson, Mark Rylance, and his son, Peter, Glenn Carney. They, like so many others are around them, are clearing out space on their ships. Civilians have been called into action. The final title card is presented. Three, the air, one hour. Already in the air, Friar Tom Hardy is on his way to Dunkirk with two other planes. This is the second Nolan movie that we cannot see Tom Hardy's mouth. <laughs> Michael Caine's voice is coming through the radio. Kane and Fryer are going over the fuel supply in the plane. Another plane is piloted by Collins. Jack Loudon is doing the same. Fryer has 70 gallons. Collins has 68 Back on the beach of Dunkirk, Tommy and Gibson non-verbally come up with a plan to get them away from the war zone. They load a corpse onto the a stretcher and make their way to the medical ship docked at the mole. As they make their way to the ship, a British officer is heard yelling at the French soldiers, British only. Not even allies can count on each other in this perilous time. The officer then tells Tommy and Gibson that the ship is leaving soon. They pick up the pace German planes come back and begin to bomb the medical ship not even the sick are safe a quote that comes to mind is from Harry Potter and the sorcerer Philosopher's Stone <sighs> quote always the innocent are the first victims so it has been for ages past so it is now the ship's ties are being cast as Tommy and Gibson approach before they make it to the ship they must walk a tightrope due to the bombing the mole is broken and all that connects the two pieces is a plank of wood. Tommy and Gibson run as fast as they can over it. As they make it across, the British army behind them cheers. They made it. Their joy does not last long. Tommy and Gibson are told immediately to leave the medical ship. Tough stuff. Like, literally, they get on the ship, only to be booted off. (sighs) Gibson sneaks into the docks, and Tommy follows suit.
2: Back at the British docks, Dawson with Peter... And at the last moment, George, cast off into war. It does not take long before they see a British destroyer pass them by. Aboard are solemn soldiers They continue their course to Dunkirk, following a simmering puff of smoke coming from across the channel. Ferrer and Collins are engaged in a dogfight. The enemy is on Collins' tail, but Ferrer is on theirs. With bated breath, Ferrer's gun scope is in focus. The enemy is not lined up but Ferrer has to take the shot. Together, Ferrer and Collins are able to take the enemy plane down, but their third, Fortis leader, is sinking to the bottom of the sea. At the mole, Tommy and Gibson are under the docks. Above them, Commander Bolton, Kenneth Brahma.
1: Good to see him uh, doing some good stuff. He needs to win after Artemis fell.
2: (laughs) I enjoy... Oh, sweet baby Jesus. I did not watch that movie. I'm not going to watch it, but I've heard devastating things.
1: Uh, devastating is the right word. I have heard <laughs> nothing but devastating things about that movie.
2: Above them, Commander Bolton, Kenneth Branagh, Colonel Winnett, James Darcy, are discussing the situations on the beach. In short, things are not looking good. The English's only line of defense, the French line, is beginning to crumble. Hard decisions have to be made. Winnett is implying that the wounded may have to be left for dead. One stretcher takes up the space of seven standing men. The only seemingly good news is that the German tanks have halted, but this is no comfort. Waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel. There is a pause in the exposition as Bolton looks out in the horizon, noting, You can practically see
0: it from here. What?
2: Home. More information is given. Churchill is hoping to get 30,000 men back home but there are 400,000 soldiers. Even more distressing, Churchill publicly has stated, the French and British are bras the South, arm in arm, leaving together. But privately, among the British commanders, the French are on their own.
1: I just got to say, though, like, of all of the Nolan exposition dumps, and we've noted there have been a lot throughout the movies, this is probably the most organic to me. I know Oh, absolutely. Obviously, it's because two military officers are talking to one another and are literally breaking down in the information. But to me, this is like the most organic of exposition dumps we've received. Yeah. And it also really shows how fucked and perilous of a position they're in. Yeah. It, it's, like it's, you it's... noted earlier, Churchill is hoping for 30,000 men back of the 400,000 men. Yeah. That's that's crazy. That's less than a tenth.
2: It's... um. It's very when you're talking like war, especially in a movie that says time constrained as this one feels, it's almost like you, it's not that it's that you can excuse it, but it's like exposition is almost expected because, like you said, it's like military officers are giving each other orders. Like they're literally telling plot to each other, but also to the audience. It's kind of like a, a two for one, you know what I mean? It's like it's part of what their characters are literally doing, but at the same time, it's a way of feeding the audience information on what's happening.
1: Yeah, it's a good way to tell the audience, hey, we're really fucked.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's Nolan's polite way of saying it.
1: Dawson, Peter, and George are continuing their voyage across the channel, but they encounter a capsized British destroyer. All that is left of the ships, all that is left is the ship's stern. Next to the propeller, huddling is a single British soldier presumably the only survivor of the sinking ship. Peter throws the soldier a rope. Now aboard is the character simply known as Shivering Soldier, Caleen Murphy.
2: Our buddy's back. Oh, he's back, all right.
1: Although he's not much of a buddy in this one. Nope. Uh, As Dawson notes, the soldier is shell-shocked. He cannot answer any questions and huddles in the corner of the ship. In time, we will find that the ship was attacked by a U-boat. Dawson continues to head toward Dunkirk with several civilian ships behind him. Farer and Collins continue their flight toward Dunkirk, are down to 50 gallons of fuel. While they need to conserve the fuel, Ferrer tells Collins they need to go up to 2,000 feet. It is the only way to make it close enough without being seen. At the mole, the soldiers all begin to duck as bombers are heading their way. The scene is from the trailer with that terrible extra. Like, they're all huddled on the, you remember that? Like, the teaser trailer that came out for this movie. The one
2: where they're all facing away, but then the one guy turns around and he looks up.
1: Yeah, and yeah. he's, like, completely out of the character. And you're just like, dude, what are you doing? Here? <laughs> this time, there's a direct hit on the mole and the medical ship. The ship is sinking. Bolton shouts that the ship needs to move away from the mole or else it will destroy their only way out. As the ship sinks, men are jumping overboard, including Alex, Harry Styles. Alex is almost crushed, but Tommy pulls him out of the way. Bolton, looking down at the men who survived the sinking ship, calls to them, let's find you another ship. Sensing a way out, Tommy and Gibson jump into the water to match the others. They are all loaded onto the hull of a destroyer. The hull is packed with hundreds of soldiers, all of which have been provided with tea and toast, with the exception of Gibson, who remains on top of the ship. As Tommy notes, he's looking for a way out in case we go down, which, smart guy in hindsight.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, granted, what happens after, but... um, I just want to make a couple notes. Um, You had said that uh, Kelly Murphy's noted as shivering soldier... Um, and I always found it interesting from the moment I saw this movie because I remember looking up all the information afterwards about how a lot of the, if not most of the characters, go kind of unnamed. Like, if some
1: of them have names, but... Yeah, it took uh, me a while to place the names with the characters.
2: But it's interesting that Nolan made decisions like giving characters not specific names or casting a lot of just, like, faceless, white, young males to try and blend together this group of people who could literally be anyone because out of all of his movies um, this feels his least character driven in terms of like feeling you're attached to specific characters um yeah. there's a there are a couple notable characters you get attached to but it's really he I, he, I really f- always get the feeling watching this that he f- wants to keep everything as generic as possible with characters because you almost want to feel like this could be anybody uh the other note you have as you mentioned uh harry styles who this is the first time that i really exactly.
1: knew,
2: knew who harry styles was and i remember when he was cast for this movie people were like i guess kind of like making jokes about it and nolan was like coming to his defense like no this kid is like an incredible actor and like i don't know the quote he said about it but he completely came to his defense and watching this i was like he actually might be the best actors of this whole movie i mean he's really i i think he's,
1: he's from the beach sequence i will say he's probably the best actor of the bunch yeah. but if we're talking overall actors i would probably go with uh Kelly and Murphy, or I'm, maybe Mark Rylance.
2: I just think out of this, the performances in this, he just like, I mean, I don't know. Like, Harry, for me, it's like Harry Styles gives it his all. Like, you it just kind of like
1: you. I'm not, I wasn't too well versed in the Harry Styles world. <laughs> like, I don't listen to their music. I can't even. I don't even know what the band's name is that he was in.
2: I keep saying to Robin that it's the Jonas Brothers. I'm like, oh, which Jonas Brothers he? And she's like, it's not the Jonas Brothers. So I don't know if he's uh, one of the One Directions. I, I think he's one of the Directions.
1: I'll be honest. I didn't even know who he really was when exactly. I saw the movie. And the fact that he didn't stick out like a sore thumb is just like good. That, that means he did his job well.
2: It makes me hope that he gets more roles. I think he's got a lot of potential. The soldier aboard Dawson's ship looks up for the first time and realizes that they're heading towards France, not England. Panicking, the soldier shouts, I'm not going back. In the calming voice that Ireland is known for, he is able to calm the soldier down. He even lures him below deck. Peter shows him to the bedroom of the ship, but does not lock him in. George, just a boy, then asks if the soldier is a coward. Dawson gloomily responds, he's not himself. He may never be himself again. Peter then gives the soldier tea. This time, after the door is closed, Peter locks the soldier inside.
1: Rylance is really doing like (laughs) the full Rylance in this movie. It's just like that, the melancholy yet matter of fact voice that he does, where it's just like, I'm going to calm you, but not bend the truth. Things are bad, but we have to do this.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. This is what he's known for. This is what he won his Oscar for. That's, that's the for role. better or for worse.
2: For better or worse. Peter then gives the soldier tea. This time after the door is closed, Peter locks the soldier inside. Ferrier and Collins are once again discussing their fuel. Collins notes he is down to 40 gallons. The conversation is quickly interrupted as they see an enemy plane flying towards a British ship. They swoop into action, but Collins shot down farrier telling him to bail out collins follows the order and lands in the water
1: right tells him to christian bail
2: out (laughs) i was actually just thinking that as i read the words i wanted to
1: write it but i was like i can't justify writing a joke that terrible to
2: bail out as in christian bail out there's a great meme i gotta send you where it's just layers where it's like christian christian bail who has a bail and it's Christian Bale with like a with like a cross necklace. He's got like a Christmas necklace, and he's got a bale of hay, and it's like Christian's Christian Christian Bale gets bailed out of jail, and it's uh, for his bail, and it's this whole. It, but there's like eight different panels where it just keeps building, and it's just it's a total Inception mindfuck, mindfuck. of just Christian Bale and his bail. Um, it is the dead of night. Aboard the destroyer, Tommy and Alex are enjoying their tea and toast. Gibson, meanwhile, rightly scared, is on deck, shivering from fear. A torpedo hits the destroyer and the cannons are hit from the sky. The ship begins to flood. Gibson opens the door for the soldiers below. Tommy and Alex manage to get out, but the destroyer is capsizing. Luckily for Tommy and Alex, there were lifeboats already following the destroyer. Unfortunately, the lifeboats are filled and there is no room on board for the two of them.
1: Yeah, I got a very mean girl's vibe. You can't sit with us. <laughs> you can't sit with us. Can't sit with us.
2: <laughs> oh man, I love it so much. I would love to hear an audio clip of that just paste it over when they showed the oh
1: so much deep fake that that would be amazing.
2: Yeah, oh, that would be so good. I would oh, I'd love to see that. Um, Gibson, meanwhile, got a spot. The soldier, Killian Murphy, aboard one of the lifeboats, almost a different character, calmly explains to Tommy and Alex that while there is no room for them on the lifeboats, they can be dragged ashore. They tie their ropes to the lifeboats and drift in their life vests. Um, interesting to note, Killian uh, Murphy, almost a different character, because that's really how it feels.
1: It was, um, that's honestly... i I know like you're tense throughout the entire movie but that's the first moment in the movie where i'm like holy shit because this you know mark rylance notes that like he's a different person he's shell-shocked but this is when it's full first like truly seen you're like wow this is what war really does to a person's mind
2: um i read a whole when i was reading about this movie after watching it again that that someone referred to the idea of the themes that this movie captures and one of them being PTSD. And they talked about Killian Murphy and the whole idea of capturing PTSD in a short amount of time, because this movie only has so much time to do it. But the, because of the time jumping, it's very unique how they do it because they show the progression, not in a linear sense. Cause you see him, like you said, as like a shivering character and he's like, like he's full of fear. And then also you see him and he's got this charisma charisma. It's just, he's got a, a notion to him that's t- its polar opposite of when we first saw him.
1: On Dawson's ship, the same scene as before plays out from a different vantage point. The three planes fly overhead. Fair, Collins, and Fortis leader. The soldiers below startled now realize that he has been locked into the bedroom but easily escapes through the top window. Like, come on, guy. Like, <laughs> Peter, what are you doing? This like, is about, Yeah. This is your father's boat. You should know you could get out through the fucking window. <laughs> the soldier confronts Dawson.
0: You haven't turned around. Oh, we have a job to do. Job. This is a job? This is a pleasure yacht. you your weekend sailors, not the bloody Navy. And your age? Men my age dictate this war. Why should we be allowed to send our children to fight it? You should be at home! Well, there won't be any home if we allow a slaughter across the channel. There's no hiding from this, son. What do you think you can do out there? On this thing? It's not just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You don't even have guns. You have a gun? Yes, of course. A rifle, a 3 on 3 Did it help you against the dive bombers and the U-boats? You're an old fool. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Turn it around. I'm not turning around. Turn it
1: around! The soldier then tries to grab the helm, accidentally pushing George down the stairs. The soldier looks at what he's done in horror. Peter rushes down and covers George's wounds, but George states he cannot see.
2: Poor enough for Georgie.
1: <sighs> Georgie, it's always the Georgies
2: that can- Always the Georgies, they always get fucked.
1: Different movie. Same year, different movie. Oh, yeah. Fair in pursuit of the enemy's plane keeps firing. The German plane is leading Fair away from the smoke, away from Dunkirk. Ultimately, Fair shoots the plane down, but fuel is getting very low. Tommy, Alex, and Gibson by dawn are back where they started on the beach of Dunkirk. Literally right back where they started. It's outrageous
2: tough stuff for my guys oh no good
1: there are less soldiers on the beach there has been progress on the evacuation but the victory that is presented is quickly overturned as the tide shifts and corpses of drowned soldiers begin to wash up on shore which that was a tough scene uh, yeah in the distance is a group of soldiers walking to a washed up ship Tommy, Alex, and Gibson join their group. They get on board and wait for the tide to come in. On the mole, Bolton and Winnett once again emphasize just how perilous of a position they are in. After the sinking of the medical ship, Britain needs to save the meager supplies it, ha- it still has for the coming war. They cannot risk saving the men at Dunkirk. In a complete reversal, Winnett says that he can see home. Bolton snaps and says that seeing it doesn't get them any closer.
2: I will say that I know it's notable. They used it a lot in the trailers, but that beach scene where they're sitting in the shores and they watch that one man just walk into the water. um, Oh yeah.
1: That too. That's a great,
2: that's a great, that's just a great bit just to show like this, almost the shell shock of like what everything happening.
1: Um, It also emphasizes the hopelessness of this. This man would rather kill himself, literally go out and try and swim across the channel and kill himself than sit on this beach and have to deal with the stress of, will I even get out?
2: Well, that's what I love about this movie is that it's like, it's all perspective, not just from the different time shifts because you're seeing it from three different points, but even just in one scene alone of these guys waiting on the beach and they're just sitting there shivering and they got their vests on and they just watch this one guy just taking off his helmet and dropping. And he literally just walks with his full gear on. He just like walking into the ocean and just, there's no dialogue. And just to see it from that perspective, is just, it's a unique shift in like this whole psychological break that they're all kind of having in their own way. Um, I just think it's, I just think it's a great bit.
1: Um, as great as a suicide bit can be. <laughs>
2: <as> <laughs> that's about as good as a suicide bit can be. Um, but nevertheless, tensions are high all around. On Dawson's ship, the soldier asks Peter, who has just tended to George's wounds if the boy will be all right? Peter snaps, saying no. The dogfight is once again seen from a different vantage point. Dawson sees Collins' plane go down and goes to help, even though there was no shoot. In several, Collins is seen struggling to try and get the hatch open. It is all the more stress-inducing as water fills the cockpit.
1: Yeah, I just want to make a note. I put several cuts in because I'm not going cut by cut because they literally cut to Collins at least like six different times through no, different I, I
2: mean, that's montages
1: the, and I just the, can't that, do it.
2: No, as the movie goes, it's cutting back between the scenes so much you just got to focus on one thing at a time. That's
1: what I did. I just want to make a note.
2: Um, it is all the more stress-inducing as the as water fills the cockpit. Desperate, Collins uses the base of his gun to try and break the glass above him to no avail. It isn't until Peter smashes the glass with his, pull, uh, with his pull hook that Collins is freed and brought aboard the Dawson ship. I remember watching that moment in the theater. And that I think this is probably the most, for me, this is probably the most intense part of the movie because it's such a personal moment you're just following one character and you're watching him slowly drown and you're like oh my god like this is it this is it for this and well, you're then watching Wade. a man who
1: could possibly drown because he's trying so hard to get out and you're just realizing like he can't break the glass with yeah. his gun
2: i mean this whole movie is just characters racing against the clock and it's funny because it's just this moment where like oh, yeah it's right, funny a- it is but Oh, it's uh, it depends on your sense of humor, but there's it's you got all these characters racing against the clock because they're in a war and they it's everything is time sensitive. But here's this moment where a character is literally in a time sensitive situation where if they don't get out of the situation in a few minutes tops, you know what I mean? Like they're gonna be dead. And so it's just in that moment, all of a sudden, the tension of the war boils down to just one character in one moment, and I. They captured incredibly well, the tension in that scene. Aboard the washed-up ship, footsteps are heard above. All the men grab their weapons. Down walks a Dutchman who wanted to help evacuate the British soldiers. Before his tale is told, a bullet pierces the side of the boat, followed by another hole and another. Tommy believes that the Germans are not shooting the boat to kill anyone, but using it for target practice
1: seems like pretty easy target practice yeah it's literally <laughs> a boat how are you missing go on
2: <laughs> as water quickly fills the ship the soldiers make their position known as they try and cover their holes to avoid sinking the dutchman says that the boat can still float but they need to lose weight
1: i just want to oh. amend they're trying to cover the ship's holes not their holes um <laughs> i
2: think that i saw a different cut of the film the men were trying to cover all of their holes Uh, The soldiers, realizing someone now needs to leave the ship, all turn on one another. Is this not unlike in The Dark Knight when the characters on the boat begin turning on one another?
1: Yeah, it is. It's very much like that. (laughs) But Um, this time, they're actually willing to kill someone.
2: (laughs) This is a little different. Um, Alex quickly incriminates Gibson saying that Gibson has not spoken a single word as long as he has been around. Alex believes he is a German spy. Alex is both right and wrong. Gibson is French, not German, but he still should not be escaping. As the soldiers all try to push Gibson out, Tommy tries to help, saying that one person's weight won't matter at this point. The soldiers turn on Tommy, too. Before anything escalates further, a machine gun goes off, shooting countless holes in the side of the ship, quickly followed by the Dutchman being shot as he tries to get the boat moving. The ship floods, and everyone must abandon ship. Tommy and Alex make it out, but Gibson drowns. Ferrier, meanwhile, is locked in a fierce dogfight. As he chases after the plane that shot down Collins, a second German plane comes swooping in. The German plane drops bombs on a British destroyer, capsizing it to chase things
1: go wrong,
0: right?
2: Things go hella wrong. Um, when it rains, it pours. I mean, this, it's just pouring all throughout this movie. Um, I will say it's interesting as you talk about the German planes and the, and the, the enemy. And I, I made it, I, I always noticed it when, when I first, I didn't notice it right away when I first saw it, but that they, the fact that they never show the enemy
1: or even mention, they never actually use the word Nazi or Germany in this movie. It
2: makes their threat so much greater in a sense because in this, what you're doing is you're not giving them the kind of narrative characteristics that you'd see in an otherwise fictional movie, even if it's based on real events.
1: It's ironic because usually the word Nazi in of itself induces fear. Yeah. But to your point, by keeping them nameless it's adding to the fear
2: there's something eerie about it and there's something that gives them makes them makes them even more threatening because you don't even though we know their motives we don't know like their personal dialogues we don't know the conversations they're having we don't know like how they're operating we just know that when we see them we know it's the enemy and it's just the fact that we never go beyond what we see Um, makes them all the more terrifying.
1: Forgive the pun, but the tide begins to turn. As Bolton looks out to the horizon, he sees home. The civilian ships have made it to the shore. Dawson, who always seems to be in the heat of battle, literally he's wherever the action is all the time, steers his ship uh, next to the sinking destroyer. Collins, watching from the ship, cheers on fair, who is still trying to get the enemy plane. Peter... Collins and the soldier now working in tandem load as many men as they can onto the ship but they need to move quickly as the wreckage is surrounded by oil which can be set aflame at any moment Alex is one of the men close enough to Dawson's ship is loaded on board at first he is hesitant to go below deck but must once below Alex informs Peter that George is dead once again, innocence is the first victim of war. I also wanna note this is like the fact that Alex gets on the ship is just a way to tie all three stories together because you had uh Colleen, uh what's his face? You have the soldier getting on uh Dawson's ship, then you have uh Collins getting on the soldier ship, then you have Alex getting on the ship. Like all the storylines yeah, tie together.
2: It's cool. There's a couple moments that and the one you mentioned earlier, where the stories collide with the planes flying over.
1: Well, yeah, and then Dawson sees Colin's ship uh, plane go down. There's a lot of moments when everything crosses over. Cool when they over.
2: cross over. It makes it. It makes it really. It's fascinating. I really enjoy
1: it. Tommy swimming uh, toward Dawson's ship is surrounded by incoming fire and the German plane. He has to go underwater just then. The oil above him bursts a flame. Many men around Tommy are forced to make a tough decision of burning or drowning. Yeah, it's real That's tough. <laughs> it's literally behind Tommy. Men are like forced to go literally up into the flames or to keep themselves underwater.
2: It's true. Would you rather burn or drown?
1: At the last minute, Tommy grabs Peter's hand. Dawson starts the ship as they move full speed ahead away from the flame. Ferrer finally takes out the German plane that has caused so much pain, but it is not the last. Following Dawson's ship is another German plane. These things just keep coming. Uh, This time at the helm is Peter. Dawson is still very much in command as he instructs Peter when to swerve the ship out of the plane's path. At the exact moment they move, the plane's bullets miss and miss the ship. Fair swoops down and takes the plane out. They can finally go home. Fair, however, is completely out of gas. While the hero in the sky, he cannot make it home.
2: Civilian ships dock back in England. The soldiers are taken off the ships and loaded onto a train. They are mostly silent. Encountering a blind man passing out food and blankets at the train station, the man simply says, good job. Alex quickly replies, all we did was survive. With half a smile, but not looking up, the blind man says, that's enough. Alex, like so many other soldiers, believes that the country will be ashamed at this massive loss. Tommy, sitting across from Alex, does not listen. Instead, he falls asleep as soon as his head hits the bench.
1: Another blind man. Another one. I just want to point that out. Oh, yeah. Notable
2: Nolan blind man.
1: I feel like every other movie, there's a blind man.
2: At the mole, the British officers are being loaded onto the, onto a ship. But Bolton says that he is going to stay at Dunkirk to help the French. Peter, meanwhile, put in an an obituary for George in the local paper. Simply it reads, local boy, George Mills, just 17, hero at Dunkirk. Ferrer lands his plane on the beach. With the sunset in the background, he sets his aircraft on fire. He is then taken by several Nazi soldiers. Presumably, he will be a POW. Uh, The next morning, the train is still going full steam ahead. Seeing children throwing rocks, Alex asks one of them for the newspaper. Again, Alex expresses a feeling of embarrassment at what he has transpired. He cannot even read what the paper paper has to say. As Tommy reads, the awe of the spectators sets in. Countless civilians line up outside the train, cheering and passing beers to the men aboard. Everyone is thrilled that soldiers have made it. Tommy reads what is arguably Churchill's most iconic speech.
0: Wars are not won by evacuations, but there was a victory inside the deliverance, which should be noted. Our thankfulness for the escape of our army must not blind us to the fact that what has happened in France and Belgium is a colossal military disaster. We must expect another blow to be struck almost immediately. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, Steps forth to the rescue and the liberation
2: of the old. A harsh reminder that what has happened on the beach have been a tragedy, but a miracle.
1: The end.
2: The end. Good grief. Do you want to give your final thoughts? I do. Um, It's an interesting place for us to wrap up Nolan because, as I had said, I don't think we were recording. I think this is Nolan's far and away the most different film we've seen from him um there are a couple instances where we were talking about the films he was doing and we're like oh this feels very different for him but this radically feels like a change in pace in editing in direction um in concept in plot i mean the fact that he's doing a war movie at all is very interesting his whole narrative i mean he could have done this movie chronologically and it probably could have been still pretty good Um, I don't know. It would have seemed strange, but the whole thing about jumping from narratives keeps things so intense because you're seeing three different timelines that are unfolding at different paces and different rates over one hour, one day, and one week. Um, The fact that he narratively cuts back and forth the way he does it's just so interesting so anyway all to say is i mean like yeah that's almost a technical achievement but it's also just very different for him and it's cool to see someone who up until now for me has had such a signature style kind of breaks i mean like there are a couple nolan tropes but he's really this is a very different movie for him so it's cool to see him even take a leap in this kind of direction um even so his color schemes his score Um, his themes, a lot of it still has his name all over it. And at the same time, this is like one of the most ambitious and unique things he's done to date. So it's pretty cool because it opens up a lot of questions as to what he has potential to do moving forward. Um, Should he choose to go in any other different directions? Um, I love it because it's different. I don't necessarily put it as as the top of one of my favorites of his, but I I can't deny how incredible of an achievement it is and just because of its uniqueness.
1: So uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I was actually a double major in college. I was a film major and a history major.
2: Uh, Yes, I remember you had said that, yeah.
1: So this movie hits me on two fronts. This is, uh, in my opinion, this is a great war movie. Because it's so, like you were saying, it's just vastly different than anything, not just that he's made, but that most people, most directors of war movies have made, you know, a lot of screenwriters typically say that, like, an event is not a story, but somehow Nolan was able to make an event a story, and... It just hits home for me. You know, I, I, As everyone knows, I've been pretty hard on Nolan recently. <laughs> the past couple of movies that he's made have not been my favorite. This movie, it's just... I, his wife and producer of the film, Emma Thomas, said that this is an art movie disguised as a studio movie. And that just plays out to me, so true. I think that this is again not just different than any movie he's made, but it's different than m- any war movie that has been made. Maybe the only comparable movie is the opening of Save It Private Ryan, and you know how I feel about the rest of Saving Private Ryan.
0: So no, the fight. fact
1: that they were able to capture the intensity that uh, plagued these harrowing soldiers for you know weeks. And put that intensity up on the big screen was just astounding to me, and you know, like Interstellar and any Nolan movie that comes before it, this is meant to be seen on the big screen, but unlike movies like Interstellar, this to me doesn't be doesn't diminish when I rewatch it on my small screen. In fact, I think I noted to you that after this rewatch, I was astounded at how much of a breeze this movie was. You know, obviously it's intense, don't get me wrong, but it still goes, it goes by so quickly. You're just like, holy he did sh- it right. Did everything right, in my opinion. Sure, you don't really grow attached to the characters, but like you said earlier, that's intentional. It's trying to put, it's trying to say, what would anyone in this situation do? You know, it, it's just about survival and a true life miracle because let's not diminish what was accomplished at the beach of dunkirk it was a miracle that these men not only survived but were able to get out to fight another day had this gone a different way you know britain maybe would have had to surrender they probably would have had to placate to the nazi regime so i guess just overall my thoughts are like i just the bullet points to what I've been saying it's intense. It hits my historical uh, affinities, and it plays to a lot of Nolan's strengths, which I love It brings it back to his art house days in a brand new way.
2: yeah, that's a good way of putting it, whereas it with each movie he's kind of kind of kind of trying to one up himself. It feels like uh each movie was trying to be bigger and longer and better and more ambitious than the last. And even though I said this is one of his most ambitious movies, it's different because the approach almost feels like that of like a young indie style filmmaker who happened to have a lot at it on his plate. He no, you a just lot.
1: nailed it about one-upping himself. You just nailed it in that regard. This movie does one-up what he has done previously, but it's not in a flashy way where I felt like Interstellar and The Dark Knight Rises we're trying to say like look at these brand new toys i have like look how long i can make a movie this is literally like this is the story that needs to be told and i'm going to do it in an hour and 40 minutes and i'm going to use as many practical and effects as i can and do it as like beautifully as i can i you know you don't need to make a movie 3 hours to make it seem grand and he, this movie proves it. It's interesting
2: because of all of his movies, this is probably the one that would merit like a three hour runtime because you're talking about three different timelines. During a war, you have how many extras and how many characters, and this is the movie that could probably get away with being that long. And yet, like you just said, like it, it succeeds at being shorter because he sticks right to the point. He sticks exactly to the narrative. He knows exactly what he wants to say in the amount of time he wants to say it. nothing feels milked no moment feels too bloated nothing feels wasted
1: so i think those are our final thoughts yeah. do you have uh, your pick of the week ready
2: i do um you had mentioned earlier give it a little shout out and i i think it's good to uh reflect back on jaws at this time <laughs> Classic. Um, there's i uh, i've seen all the jaws documentaries i'm a huge fan of that movie and there's um when they talk about how the, the boats one of the boats was sinking and they had all the sound equipment and all of the crew were holding up their equipment over their heads and um you know uh you know so one of them yells like save the actors and the crew i guess one of the crew members was like fuck the actors like save the equipment you know and it's just funny because i i see this vision of of a young spielberg barely even beginning his career Dude,
1: having, he was 26 when he made that movie
2: that's unbelievable and
1: that's unbelievable. That makes me really sad about my life.
2: Oh, oh of on. course, it's the most more, it's the most depressing thing you can think of, but um and I imagine this giant studio like throwing money and I'm like, hey, "Hey, you better figure this thing out because if not, you're going in the can and like Spielberg's sitting there watching his boats sink while his crew is like saving their equipment with this mechanical shark that's not working." And as, I mean that that's a brilliant film in itself. We don't have to, I, I I'm not even going to get into the film itself, but just the seeing the peril on water in this movie and thinking of how much of, um, knowing how much terror there can be on the ocean and on on the sea and um, Jaws is a movie that captures that kind of terror uh, flawlessly. So that movie always, that movie came to mind when watching
1: this. Good, good choice. And you know, do you wanna talk about World War II? I know Jaws doesn't take place during World War II, Uh, Quint was a veteran of that war, oh, and he has arguably the <laughs> one of the greatest film monologues in the oh it's inter- incredible about the u s s Indianapolis and just the p t s d he suffered from that war absolutely good choice good choice oh, so good and yours uh i'm gonna go in a completely different direction and say, let's do Fantasia this week. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Cuz why not? That movie is one of the most experimental movies that I think has ever been put on the big screen by a big studio. We we don't have to go into how that movie was made right now cuz I would love to cover it, but every time I watch it, I am just in awe at the imagination gone wild on the screen it just astounds me every time because there's literally segments, the opening segment of that movie is just flashing lights and blimps on the screen that metamorphosis metamorphosizes into like a vignette of like craziness. And it just, every vignette just outdoes itself. <laughs> um, I, and it, you know, culminating to Ave Maria where you're just like, Walking away, going, holy crap! Like <laughs> this, this was an experience. This is beautiful, and uh, you know, let's be real. If the, the drugs don't hurt on that one, well,
2: I was gonna say you you use the word experimental, which I think is like maybe the most choice word you can use when talking about Fantasia, because uh, if you're going to use experimental drugs, which we don't condone, of course, but you know, oh, never. If, you were, if you were to and watch a film that's probably one of the top 10 movies you could watch in terms of getting the most experience out of your experimental experience
1: (laughs) absolutely this is honestly one of my favorite movies of all time that movie crazy it's so beautiful
2: I, i gotta be honest with you i have not seen that movie since i took an animation class in high school so it's been well over
1: a decade. I highly recommend it. The funny thing about that movie is it's like, it wasn't appreciated in its time and it's not hard to see why. And it's not going to be appreciated by children either, unless they're like literally toddlers. And it's meant for toddlers, stoners, and art <laughs> fanatics, because you just, if you're, if you are
2: music, And music official, uh, classic, a uh, classical yeah. music- You're right.
1: It's an art house film that was made, an animated art house film, which never comes around anymore. Like, you know, it's literally one in a million.
2: Animated movies have arguably gotten better in terms of storytelling and music and this and that, but you don't see animated movies that kind of are willing to play ball with, like, risk-taking the way that they used to. I mean, even something like Nightmare Nightmare Before Christmas or... um, but Fantasia, you know, you put those these those kind of movies in categories of just animated movies that you just don't see anymore.
1: This was back when Walt Disney was willing to take chances on movies that would never be taken now by nah. l- literally anyone.
2: Times have time the times they have a changed. Even later,
1: friend. Walt would not have made that movie because nah. of how experimental it was. You know, it it was a pure blimp on the radar, and I just can't recommend it enough.
2: In a sense, it's a movie that came out at exactly the right time. Yeah. Because like you said, if he attempted it later, it wouldn't have worked.
1: Well, I think it would have worked later. It did make more money in its second release in the 1960s, because, you know, something about dancing mushrooms appealed to to people (laughs) in the 60s more than the 40s. Well, that's where it got
2: its home, but even later i mean i don't know i my think ar- even
1: my argument is purely that walt disney you know in the early 40s late 30s after snow white because this movie came out in 1940 that's mm-hmm. when he was still excited about animation and what it can what the medium can do what it's potential and- for yeah as time progressed, you know, we we don't have to go into the whole history of the studio right now, but there was a strike in the studio The World War II came around, the studio hit really hard times. And Walt went back to what worked, you know, you making Cinderella, you're making uh, fairy tales, Peter Pan, things that like, are kind of conventional. And I mean, I guess Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland aren't necessarily conventional, but they're told in a more conventional way than they it, could have been.
2: It it works for the same reason that film noir works. It's the it's it's a post war era. Well, this of, is a pre war era, but well, it was the well, there was the what Peter Pan and all those were. in the, were Well, those pre- were
1: poor, those were post war. Yeah,
2: because that's what I'm referring. Because what happened is is that this whole idea of fairy. I mean, I guess it started as fairy tales pre war, but that whole idea of giving the belief that film that genres like film noir gave people in terms of like responding to what was happening in the world and what was happening during a war and trying to make a statement about like well here's something that's totally opposite here's something to literally take you into another world or a fairy tale and there's something that's kind of universal about that and that's kind of like and we can talk about this in a whole another segment but it's kind of like what comic book movies have become in a post 9 11 era i mean it's really just not that 9 11 specifically is the event but like the, everything that happened in the middle east wars after that i mean and you look at this whole idea of like the all american hero in captain america or even the early spider-man movies or the idea of like what a comic book movie means in terms of defending the patriotism of America or whatever. And it's one of those statement kind of films. And I think Fantasia fits in that era of its, like, of its time, which is why it came out exactly the right. I mean, like you said, it responded better. It got a better it, response. Yeah, it,
1: res- it got a better response 20 years later, 20, like 20, 25 years later. But, but
2: what it was intending for its time was kind of perfect, you know?
1: Absolutely. So that's my pick of the week.
2: That's good. That's a totally different take.
1: Got a little different than Jaws, but hey, what's um, it called? Spielberg has noted that Fantasia is one of his favorites. So
2: it all comes full circle. It all
1: comes full circle. I'm
2: proud of you and your brooms and their buckets and all that all that jazz. That's wonderful.
1: So uh, as always, you can find me at Mr. Filmart on Instagram. Uh, still working on getting that Instagram page set up still, for ourselves here. They're
2: working on that novel, huh? Yes. Uh, you know, that novel you're public gonna... and all. Enemies become, become friends. Friends become, become enemies. Friends become enemies. Uh, yeah, we'll get yeah it's it. going to be great. It's going to be great. We'll eventually get to it. I promise at some point we will have some kind of...
1: I, I, no one can see this, but he's waving his hands at me like a Jedi mind trick. Like we're gonna, ooh, we gonna, will,
2: done. We will have some kind of page. I promise. I promise.
1: All All right, everyone. This has been another episode of Who's Filmography Is It Anyway. Join us next time where we will finish up the Christopher Nolan saga by going through his filmography and ranking what we how we feel about them. And uh
2: yes, it's time for the epilogue. We'll tell you our final thoughts and we'll we'll you will hear our rankings and how diverse they may or may not be.
1: I imagine they're gonna be quite diverse. We will see. Well, just click on that next episode and you'll see, everyone. Absolutely. All right.
2: All right. Good night, Hollywood.